Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly guinea radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Martin Eric Aim, one of the co-founders of Celtic Frost. It's been a while since you and I have done one of these together, Randy, so I'm excited to be up here in Connecticut. It's uh, the post-Halloween uh, season. Have you Did you enjoy your Halloween this year? Always. I had a blast. I love Halloween. Yeah, it's really the only time of year I enjoy anything. So, <laughs> Before we get started, I just want to thank Steve for sending us uh, this live Ozzy recording from the Speak of the Devil uh, era of the band. And it's uh, right off the board. Sounds killer. There's definitely this raw feel to it. Um, and... It just is like, that's probably one of my favorite, like, eras of the band. And now I have this great live recording. Yeah, thanks a lot, Steve. Very cool. Um, I didn't even know those really existed, or I hadn't heard them before. And I finally did track down a copy of the LP. But this, the stuff he sent has more material than the yeah. LP. It's, it's definitely more material, and uh, it's just got this, like I said, this really raw vibe to it, which yeah. is cool. Great. Thank you. Now, is there some kind of, like, conspiracy about keeping that record out of print, do you think, Randy? I don't know, man. I, I know we touched on this a little bit on one of the last episodes. I think it just it's one of those weird things. Like, a lot of these records we talk about that aren't in print, whether they be old Rollins Band records or Sam Hain records or, or this record, it's probably just some red tape bullshit, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is hard to believe, though, because with, you know, Ozzy, Sharon Osbourne, you figure they could just basically do whatever the fuck they want <laughs> yeah i mean you figure this could be another viable stream of income for them and i know that they're very concerned about keeping the income streams up so uh i really? don't understand <laughs> i don't understand why this record's out of print if um anyone out there is connected with the osborne corporation let them know that me and randy want that record <laughs> to come out in another repackaging maybe it has this additional material on it Who well knows? that's the thing there's there's all these reissues from you know all the time from all kinds of bands bands we love but Sometimes the additional material it just isn't that great. This has legitimate, like, unreleased versions of songs that's never been out there before. So they could do a really awesome reissue of this with all that bonus material and everything. So do it. Make yeah. it happen. That's, that's what I'm hoping happens someday. So for this week, we're tackling Morbid Tales by Celtic Frost, a band that's been a huge influence on me, and I'm sure you too, Randy. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, this is actually their debut EP, released in November 1984. Recorded at Kate Studio, Berlin, Germany. Recorded and mixed in one week. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, pretty cool. Yeah, man, I love that. Yeah. Producer Horst Mueller, Tom Warrior, and Martin Ain. Executive producer Carl Walterbach. The program length is 24 minutes, 51 seconds in the European version, 32 minutes and 9 seconds the U.S. versions. It came out on Noise in Europe and Enigma slash Metal Blade in the United States. So one's 24 minutes, one's 32 minutes. So technically the European version is an EP and the American version would be classified as an LP. Sure. Right? Yeah. I could, I could, uh, I can, I can get with that, okay. that classification. 
both short, which I like. Well, you know, back in those days, and we've touched on this in yeah. past episodes, records were shorter, man, because they were, had the physical medium limitations of right. the vinyl LP. So, so on this record, we had uh, the personnel was Tom Gabriel Fisher, a.k.a. Tom G. Warrior, guitar, lead vocals. Martin Ain, and that's actually not his legit name. It's Martin Eric Strickler. Ah, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Okay. Um, bass and uh, vocals, and also bass effects. <laughs> yes. Stephen Priestley on drums, who actually was a second... Uh, I need a fucking pencil or something here. Pen? Yeah. Oh, cool. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you might want edit. this end of it. Yeah. I'm going to make an edit note here. So uh, next time we'll do Out of the Cellar by Rat for <laughs> 25. All right. On drums, we had Stephen Priestley, who um, is, I guess you can consider him a session player on this record. Yeah, the whole drumming thing swirling around this was pretty... A lot of different drummers in this band. And, <laughs> and he was the, the Hellhammer drummer, correct? Yes, that's correct. But left the band because of musical differences, Yeah, which is odd. But we'll get into later why he ended up on the record, inevitably. Yeah. One of the um, cooler things about Martin Ain, a.k.a. Martin Eric Strickler, you know, they also had um, different versions of names they went through. There was a, a period of time where Martin was known as Slade Necros. <laughs> cool, right? Yeah. Um, and Ain, though Ain, the Ain River is a, it's a river in France. Okay. But he chose Ain because it had some numerological meaning that sums to zero in terms of uh, the Kabbalah, you know, meaning that it was the null set, that he could be anything, that there was like this open window of ob- objectivity that his future could manifest as. And um, I always thought that was really cool because, you know, I, I you know, have a quite a deep uh, appreciation for the occult and, you know, ancient sort of religions and things like that. And the fact that a guy at that stage of his life, like they were very young guys, that he was that deeply into something like that, I thought right. was really cool. Right. And um, Tom G also had another uh, name that he was also known as Satanic Slaughter. <laughs> It gets right to the point. Yeah. There were some additional uh, players on this record. Uh, Horst Mueller, who was the uh, producer, he did some backing vocals on some of the tracks. Uh, Hertha Oling, additional vocals. And Oswald Spengler on violin. All right. Hang on a minute. Okay. The violin player you have listed is what? Oswald Spengler. All right. Because when I was uh, when I got my notes from the research department. Okay. They claimed the violin was performed by a guy named Wolf Bender, <laughs> I like which that. I, which like I that couldn't name. wait to say because I knew you'd love that name. That's a great name. Yeah, Wolf Bender. Okay. So let's, let's say that maybe they both played on that record. I don't know. Okay. All right. But anyway, I like Wolf Bender. That's a yeah, sick yeah. name. Exactly. Okay. Oswald Spengler also is kind of a cool name. That's too. not bad either. But, you know, I know if it had Wolf in it, you would be Yeah, Wolf's partial. definitely yeah. a cooler name. Uh, so the Euro version of the record, side one, starts off with Into Crypt of Rays. Uh, then we go into Visions of Mortality. Side two, Procreation of the Wicked, the anthemic procreation of the wicked. <laughs> Return to the Eve, Dance Macabre, and Nocturnal Fear 
And then the U.S. version, which came out on Enigma and Metal Blade, had a bunch of uh, additional tracks. And so that lines up to be kicking off with Into Crypt of Rays, Visions of Mortality, Dethroned Emperor, which blows my mind that the Europeans left that song off of that that EP. Dude, both the, both the songs they left off. I, I mean, how do you leave those songs off? Those are like the quintessential, like this, the Throne Emperor is like a, a quintessential Celtic Frost song. Yeah, you know, man. it's been covered by so many different bands. You know what I mean? Any of those guys from Noise Records, if you're still standing upright, like what the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> come on. Uh, then the side one and uh, circles out with. Uh, Morbid Tales. Side two kicks off with Procreation of the Wicked, then it goes into Return to the Eve, Dance Macabre, and then finally Nocturnal Fear. So the, the first track, well, the first track on the record is the intro, Human. Yeah. But the first real you know, song on the record, Into the Crypts of Ray, features a very important moment in the history of... Uh, Celtic Frost and Tom G. Warrior. Do you know what that is? That uh, the song is based uh, on a child uh, murderer. Uh, no, <laughs> what? it is the first time on a on a record he did the quote unquote death grunt. Oh, okay, yeah. Yes. All right. That's uh, that's interesting because chronologically, I guess you're right. He, he didn't do that in Hellhammer, did he? No. Cool. Not to my knowledge, anyway. You know, trying now, I'm trying to think back if he actually did the death grunt in Hellhammer, but uh, I don't think so, huh? Yeah, it's funny because um, I actually heard uh, Into Megatherion before I heard Morbid Tales, okay? Yeah, so it's I, in my mind, even though I know this is chronologically earlier, I'm, I'm thinking of the reverse, right? That's, right, right, you know, just gotcha. the way I, I the chronology of how I got exposed to Celtic Frost, so but yeah, this record um, has touched almost every genre of extreme music that you can think of. You know, there was hardcore bands such as uh, um, Sheer Terror that comes to mind immediately and Dark Side NYC that are heavily influenced by Celtic Frost. Absolutely. Unabashedly influenced. And then death metal bands, Obituary, and then an entire genre of the second wave of black metal that's been you know, totally inspired by this particular record and the canon of Tom G. Warrior in general. Even though this record is really the only record they ever made that sounds like this, because, you know, they changed a lot record to record. Yeah. I would argue that uh, this this era of the band is just as influential as, say, like Motorhead. Absolutely, man. Or, or even Black Sabbath. Like, like you were just saying, it's just... This record in particular, the style in this record influenced punk bands, hardcore bands, metal bands of all kind, black metal bands, doom bands. Uh, it's up there, man. It's down the Mount Rushmore of most influential extreme music records, for sure. And, and Celtic Frost is probably a band that a lot of like more mainstream people aren't even that aware of, I would say. I would agree with that, yeah. You know, I mean, people definitely know about Slayer, Motorhead, and, you know, Black Sabbath and all that sort of stuff. But I think the stylistic shift may have kept them from, you know, being one of those bands. Because they just, record after record, man, they just threw a curveball at you. You're like, what is this? Yeah, actually, like- you know, that's a good point. Because I, I don't really see, maybe production-wise, between two Megatherion and Morbid Tales, but I think the songs are similar. Maybe the playing and the execution is a little bit better. But definitely, um, uh, you know, after that, there's been there were definitely some big shifts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Cold Lake being one that 
one of our favorites to talk about. I mean, I know that generally you mentioned that you like Cold Lake out there, and people are, you know get offended by that. You yeah. know, it's like you know, it's like saying that you know you, you believe the Earth is flat or something. You know what I mean? It's like a a very div- divisive statement to say that Cold Lake is a good record. Sure, but maybe like. In comparison to this record, Cold Lake is not a good record, but in comparison to the overall uh, offering of heavy metal music, especially that style of heavy metal music, I think right. Cold Lake is a great record. I agree, man. I, like I, we were talking before, I, I think me and you were in the minority yeah. that liked that record, but uh, I don't know. I feel like it, sometimes I'm like that. Well, like A lot of people hate Sabbath's Born Again. I think it's a great record too. Me too, I love it. But I have to say that when it came out, I didn't really like it. Yeah, and it's not, is it, it you know, if you hold it up against Masters of Reality, it's, no. you know. Or <laughs> it's definitely not as iconic as those right, other records. Right, But I still find stuff in it that I really like. Another thing to take note of too is that though Hellhammer and Celtic Frost both have Ain and Warrior in it, uh, they're not just a new band with a different name. No. You know, apparently, uh, according to the research that I've done, we've both done, Ain and Warrior had the had the first three albums completely planned out, like aesthetically, like sound-wise, like, you know, all the, the lyrical content of all the songs were, were definitely planned out. And there was like a def- division between Hellhammer being over and Celtic Frost being this new chapter in what they were doing. Right, right. You know, so I mean, it's like kind of lazy, I guess, where some journalists uh, just decided that this is oh well, you know, we everyone hated Hellhammer, which was true actually that most right. people didn't like them, right. and so they're going to try to like you know game everyone to think that oh yeah we have this there's this new band Celtic Frost, but it really is just Hellhammer with right. a different name, which was not the case. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, doing the research for this, like the. Uh, the way when they went to the formation of uh, Celtic Frost from Hellhammer, the way they promoted the band had, even though they were they got had a record deal before they even you know did anything, it was everything was done on a very DIY kind of level. Like they 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 created all the logos themselves, <laughs> most yeah. of the artwork themselves. Um, they existed in like a world of their own, which I don't know if anyone out there has read the the uh, Tom G Warrior book. Only death is real. Great book. Great book, and it, it it starts early, early on, and ends right as the uh, recording for Morbid Tales wraps up. And uh, that's kind of a. I always thought that was a weird way to end that book. Well, there's supposed I mean? to be a second one, isn't yeah. there? I, I, that's what I'm hoping for. But this came out several years. I know ago. it ends. It seems like it ends very abruptly. It leaves yeah. me wanting so much more. It makes me want there to be just one huge volume of this that covers yeah. like you know. But in that book, you know, especially in that book, more so than anywhere I've read or any interviews I've heard or anything, it paints a picture of the isolation that they were living in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I mean, back then in the 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, the world was a lot different. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, there wasn't the access to certain things that people have and enjoy these days where you could jump online and order shit on Amazon. Right. You had to find out about stuff, you know, and, and you know, Zurich, Switzerland, and, you know, it, it's a, you know, though it's a major city and, you know, Switzerland is, is a, a crucial, you know, country in Europe. It's not, in, in late 70s, early 80s, 
a lot of cultural stuff kind of swept by Zurich, especially in the more obscure things like extreme music. You know what I mean? That wasn't really something that was in the forefront of things that went through Zurich. And these guys lived outside of the city, like in the suburbs. Yeah, as I was going to say, at the, the Grave Hill Bunker, as they called their rehearsal room, yeah. uh, that was in a town called Birchwell, Switzerland. Yeah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I, but I don't know how far outside of Zurich that is. It could be like, you know, 15 miles away, but feel like it's 500 miles away. But the, it's described as a very rural place. Like they were, they were like fucking freaks, man. Yeah. That's the vibe I got. Complete, like, isolationist freaks. Like, um, it's just insane the description uh, in the book about that world that they lived in and how isolated they, at least they felt, you know? Yeah, they also talk about taking trips to England to get records and stuff, too, which is like, you know, that's, um, once again, speaks to the whole thing of, like, you know, going, going, putting the time and effort into things. You know, like, it was important enough for them where they actually took a ferry over to the UK to go to London to buy Venom and Def Leppard records. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the desire to express themselves and to gain stimulation in, like, things that were outside of the day-to-day lives that they led, you know, that's, like, um, definitely, like, an outsider thing. You know, they were coming from this, the music approach for, as, like, outsiders to their, their society, you know. And... um these days, it's easy to be an outsider. You know, everyone's an outsider. You know? <laughs> no, I was gonna say it's now. It's yeah, exactly kind of what you're saying. It's it's uh, it's hard to be an insider. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you it's know. like everyone's got their own little quirk now, and you know, their their way. They got a blog, and you know, they post stuff on Facebook about how different they are, and all this other stuff. And back then, it was that wasn't celebrated. Like conformity was celebrated, especially if right. if you lived in like some small town in, in Switzerland where not a lot of change is actually happening around you and you know you are branded an outsider and you have different things that make you happy that aren't part of the oeuvre of what's going on around you you know what i mean and yeah it's just it's um it's just like a, a whole an insight that book gives an insight into this world that you know you and i like you know, I didn't grow up in a city either, but I also had access to, you know, New York City, you know what I mean? So I didn't feel that cut off from things. Well, yeah, what I that I kind of felt I related to a lot of the stuff uh, in the book with regards to isolation because I grew up in, like, you know, a farm town in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But I was, I was still 35 minutes from Providence, an hour and a half from Boston or whatever. Uh, but when I first started getting into, you know, underground stuff, like, I didn't have – I was young. 14 and have a license and stuff like that so the first couple of years before i started hanging out with older kids that would drive to providence and boston and go to shows and go record shopping and all that stuff I, you know i felt like i kind of lived in my own little world like i would make like i'm sure everyone did this as a kid well maybe not anymore yeah now, <laughs> but, you, now you can just get on amazon i would make like my own suicidal shirts and you know my own black flag shirts with a white t-shirt and a marker and shit like that because there was nowhere to buy that shit there was no internet to buy it on that's for sure there was no cool record stores like um so i can kind of relate in a lot of ways to the uh the feelings that he conveys in the book about being isolated yeah definitely and and like i said the idea of them going to london 
to right. buy records. Is it, it reminds me of me when I got my license driving two hours across the whole state to go to Trash American Style, which, you know, we can't have an episode without mentioning Trash American Style. I know, style. exactly, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, but uh, well, that's, that's really, I, I love that that's the common thing, even before we even knew each other. Right. Like that we both went to the same record store. You yeah, know, and, absolutely. You know, and then that's, that's only, but for me, that was only like a 20 minute drive or 15 minute drive or whatever, you know. And right. Instead of having to get on a ferry to go to <laughs> the fucking UK, you know what I mean? But you know, one more thing with like, you know, about the isolation that, you know, they apparently lived in trying to do this band, uh, I think that leads to a lot of the issues with the drummer. Yeah. Like yep. finding the members. Um, you know, when there's no one around, man. I mean, I think of some of the bands I had in high school and some of the dudes that were in those bands. I wanted to do a, a hardcore band. And a, but there was no one around. I mean, there's a couple people that listen to hardcore. And if, they couldn't really play instruments, but they tried. And then I would have some, like, fucking metal dude on drums who, like, didn't get it at all. Yeah. But, like, he sort of, like, he might have heard Suicidal. Right. Yeah, that was the common thing. So, but, all right, I'll take this guy. You know, like, yeah, it was just, it was funny going back and reading the book for a second time and, uh, hitting on some of these points. I was like, God, this reminds me a lot of me when I was a kid. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, but once again, like they, a lot of critics were were citing this as just being like a continuation of Hellhammer. You know what I mean? And, uh, oh, and the other thing I was thinking about too is like, in their minds, and I felt this way about Venom too, like (laughs) in their heads, they weren't, they wanted to sound like fucking Motley Crue. Like, and this is just my, like, pro, you know, projection, I guess. Like, in 1980, okay, there wasn't that, there was, like, Judas Priest, you know, New Wave of British Heavy Metal. The the model of what they were trying to create, the precedent for that didn't exist. Oh, right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. in their minds, they're, they're hearing these big snares and, like, Vince Neil vocals and, you know. But they were like, you know, we, we dig this, man. We dig Def Leppard, you know. But we want the lyrics to be about something different. Right. You know, but what they were trying to create probably wasn't that much different sonically than like Crocus or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, there was no blueprint for extreme. There was no extreme yeah. music. Exactly. Well, Crocus, another Swiss band, by the way. Crocus, but, yeah. But um, in their brains, they, they the thing that they were uh, trying to goal was to sound, make a record that sounded like Judas Priest or something, you know what I mean? Right, or, right. Or to sound like, you know, what like Iron Maiden or or Def Leppard, who are great. Those first two Def Leppard records are awesome. Oh yeah, all the early records by those bands you just mentioned are great. But maybe like we're not going to sing about getting laid on a Saturday night or whatever. Maybe we're going to sing more about darker subject matter. You know, like Gilda Ray and like you know in, into Crips of Crips of Rays. You know what right. I mean? And then because they weren't able, they didn't have access to the quality recording facilities that say Def Leppard and like you know had or crocus had or whatever or well the, venom kind of the did. crew yeah the motley crew you know whatever it ended up sounding like this raw thing and they weren't able to play as well as those other bands maybe you know like they, it just turned into this kind of like other thing it like spawned the imperfections of what they were doing created this other aspect of of music you know right. what i mean and i always found that like fascinating because you know, even going back to Black Flag, you know, like the later Black Flag records, it was clear you've done a, tons of reading about that era of the band too, where like Greg Ginn was listening to like Dio and like yeah stuff like that. And in my head has like this almost cock rock production on it. I agree. 
you know, and in his mind, his band was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do more of this like heaven and hell, like Sabbath thing. Right. Right. But they, they created one of the most like out there proto hardcore punk metal hybrids that in history. Yeah. And that's kind of like my, my reflection on like morbid tales is that it's like, yeah, there was Hellhammer, which was, I mean, let's call it what it is, man. A bunch of dudes who didn't know what the fuck they were doing, expressing themselves. And it's almost like outsider artwork almost, you know what I mean? Right. But the the tighter concept for Celtic Frost, in their in their minds, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we dig these records. We dig Priest, you know, we like Maiden, we like, you know, whatever, all into Venom, you know. Uh, but it doesn't sound like any of those things. It sounds like something that's completely different. And that is the thing that years later, everyone, same thing with, you know, everyone latched onto that. You know what I mean? Like later on, like 10 years later, you got right. Obituary who's like citing Celtic, uh, Celtic Frost as a prime influence and they're doing something. But they're responding to this um, byproduct of the creative process that Martin Ain and Tom G. Warrior went through. Right. You know what I mean? And I always found that was one of the reasons why I love Celtic Frost so much is that it was the imperfection of the band that um, made me react to it. You know, that I'm, that maybe not when I first heard them, but as time went on and I started making my own music, yeah, I realized that what I was creating didn't sound anything like what I wanted it to sound like. <laughs> And that's kind of how I feel right. like Celtic Frost manifested. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it only makes sense because, you know, there just wasn't a lot. For what they ended up sounding like, for what this record sounds like, there's not much to pull from before it. No, there's nothing, man. You know what I mean? You know, and then also throw in throw in their own, their own ideas about what they wanted to accomplish with the music. You know what right. I mean? And, um, you know, and a lot of people also say, oh, yeah, they were, they were like a very punk-influenced band. But based on the reading... They really weren't, though. There was, like, Discharge was an influence on them. Right. But they weren't, like, borrowing from punk rock to create Celtic Frost sounds. No, I hear, I hear like, punk sound and stuff and riffs and stuff, but I don't think it was, like, I think it was just, like, a natural thing. Maybe. Yeah. I, you know? And the punk that I do hear them being influenced by is Discharge. Really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, really yeah. it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't think these guys are, like, digging on, like, the Sex Pistols or any kind of, like... You know, like what people think of like as punk rock music. Like the, I don't think the Ramones entered into the formation of the uh, the development of the Celtic Frost sound. You know, you don't think I mean? they're checking out maybe some early Bold demos or something? No, I don't think so. No, <laughs> <laughs> no yeah, I, I definitely hear uh, punk in there, but like I, I think it was just a natural thing. Yeah, I don't think they were they were. Yeah, like I said, Discharge. I hear that in there. A bunch of different. Um, versions of this came out over the years too uh you know remasters reissues yeah it's actually hard to keep track of you know in in 99 there was like a like a remaster cd version that came out and um you know that had a bunch of different tracks on it and uh it had some added rehearsal stuff and you know things like that there's a there's a different drummer that played on a couple of the tracks it was reed saint mark right and um he joined the band and he appears on, you know, Emperor's Return and Two Megatherion. Yeah. Yeah, he joined the band right after uh, the recording of Morbid Tales, correct? Yeah. Because yep. the, the other dude split right after. 
that they were like bummed because they thought they were going to be able to convince this guy to hang on. Like, hey, we just made this record. We got a record deal. And the, the other crazy thing is, too, they didn't, they recorded this in, uh, what was it, 84, right? Uh, November of 84? Yeah. They recorded it? Or is that when it was released? Uh, actually, let me go back to my notes here. I think it was released in November of 84. Let's see. Released. Released November 1984. Yeah. But they didn't play a show <laughs> until the middle of 1985 because they didn't have a drummer. Yeah. You know? Because they couldn't find anyone in uh, virtual Switzerland, I guess. That could... <laughs> they just recorded this, like, you know, maybe they didn't think so at the time, but it was a landmark album. Uh, and if, according to everything I read, those guys were beyond thrilled with the outcome of it. And then, like, the drummer, like, splits the day after they record, and they're like, great. Well, they were saying, too, that in, in some of the stuff I read, that the drummer was looking to do something different. Right. You know what I mean? He That's why like, he allegedly left Hellhammer. And yeah. they talked him into coming back to make this. Yeah. But then he still wasn't into it. He's he, like, he I don't wanted to do, do like, some more commercial shit, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he probably figured, oh, well, you know, we got this deal with Noise Records and whatever, and... You know, at that stage, Noise was like kind of like the shit in Europe for like metal. Yeah, yeah. Creator, creator. Yeah, man. It was like, you know, that if creator was probably creator like Destruction, like those bands in the '80s, were probably the the height, the pinnacle of like, you know, European like thrash metal. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, you know, as far as like popularity went, because they made it over to the states and that sort of thing. You know. Um. Another thing I found that was really funny is like their uh, their war with England that they had <laughs> with English press, like just like smashing all of this stuff, like from Hellhammer. Oh, they yeah, were they were at sure. the forefront of just calling Celtic Frost like a rebranding of Hellhammer and all right, this other right, stuff. Right. And apparently that contributed to them not playing England for like many years. Like they they didn't play England until years later. Oh, yeah, that I didn't know really. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, fucking um. British man. <laughs> well yeah, I mean, you know, they did they recorded Morbid Tales and then they didn't play for a, a long time. They actually went back and recorded the Emperor's Return EP before they ever played. So they recorded Morbid yeah. Tales, then had a long break, then recorded Emperor's Return EP, then finally played live. That's yeah. Celtic Frost, which is just kind of nuts to think about. Totally. So how how did you get uh, get on board with this band? Like, when was the? Do you remember the first time you heard Celtic Frost? I don't remember the first time I heard Celtic Frost, but the first time I became aware of Celtic Frost was Thrasher magazine. Yeah. Um, and then I would start to see like uh, people from like the Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front bands I was really into. Name drop. Celtic Frost as an influence. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, I, I I know I picked up one of their records. I'm not sure if it was Morbid Tales <clears throat> or Two Megatherion. I picked it up and looked at it, and I'm like, I don't know, man. This shit looks kind of metal, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. I wasn't fully on board at that point, you know? Right. Uh, I was really into hardcore and punk at that point. Um, then I, I ended up buying uh, – I want to say I heard it from somebody but before, but I ended up buying Morbid Tales on cassette at a flea market. Yeah, okay. All like right. in my shithole town. This is one vendor there. He always used to have weird old like metal shit. I wish I could go back in time and buy all of it now. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this was probably, for me anyway, 87. Okay. My first time. Yeah. Late, late 87, early 88. Yeah, because I remember... Once again, you probably you remember WXCI, 
right? Uh, yeah. The radio sure. station, which, I mean, it's a college station, yep. and it was in uh, Danbury. I think they broadcasted out of. Can you get that up here? No. No? No. Too weak of a signal? Yeah. It's yeah. weak. I barely was able to get it, and I only lived like 15 miles away from yeah. it. You know what I mean? It was like <laughs> yeah. in the town of Carmel where I grew up, Carmel, New York. I was like maybe maybe 20 miles away from WXCI's broadcasting point, and it came in like sometimes not at all. You know what I mean? You have to go in your attic or something. Yeah, shit. I had to be like on some elevated floor <laughs> to like catch catch the radio station. But anyway, they had um they had a hardcore show, a reggae show. And there was uh, the metal shop or whatever. I don't even remember what it was called. But that's where I actually heard a lot of like like Metallica for the first time. Yeah. And there was like, it probably was a pre-recorded interview with Lars Ulrich. And he talked about Venom, the term black metal. And this is in like 1986 maybe. Right. And then he talked about bands like Celtic Frost and everything. And, I, and that's when I first heard the name. And I thought the name was cool. Right. Because I was like way into like Conan and, you know, Lord of the Rings and all this other stuff and like European mythologies and everything. And um and I was like, Wow, this is like Celtic Frost. That sounds cool, man. That sounds like something I should be into. You know, months went by. You know, I used to record the um metal sh- those that metal show. Yeah. On cassettes. You know, you'd tune in your radio and you'd have a st- this doesn't even exist this technology doesn't even exist anymore but it's like you'd have like a stereo system it'd be like one unit there'd be a turntable on the top a cassette deck and a radio that you could tune into a station with there's a knob you know hence the term left of the dial right (laughs) left of the dial was the stuff on the left hand side like the the low numbers the 80s low 90s the low 90s where they had the weaker signals that was also, the more obscure music was found on the left of the dial. The hardcore, the punk, the reggae shows, the free jazz, you know, like college radio stations, like right. all that stuff. So I, was, I would tune into the WXCI. I would, tune, I would record the hardcore show too sometimes, but mostly the metal shows. You put in a cassette, hit play and record. You get like in two hours of shit. You can listen to it. That's how I found, I finally heard them on there. And I was like, wow, this is like pretty pretty out there stuff at the time because it didn't sound like metal really to me. Like I, I at the time, I've always been a metal fan. I always consider punk and hardcore to be like a slightly inferior genre of music because of the lack of technical ability at some of the playing, you know. And I didn't really appreciate punk rock music to its full extent until maybe I was like 17 or 18 years old. And I remember thinking that it sounded a lot like some of the punk quote-unquote music I'd heard, but the lyrical stuff was way different. You know, it was like more about like darker shit that I was, you know, starting to explore at that time in my life too. And that was like my first, And I, but I didn't actually buy a Celtic Frost record until the late 80s, I think. When I was able to, you know, I was on my own, you know, I was in college, I was going to record stores all the time. I had expanded beyond the world of, uh, of Malcolm and, and <laughs> the, you know, the trash American style, like, you know, radius, you know what right. I mean? And, uh, and, and then I, I, but I bought two Megatherion first because that was what they had. Sure. You know. That's how you bought records back yeah, then. Yeah, you didn't have, like, you couldn't just, like, dial in. Celtic Frost, boom, a million things show up. Right. 
And then I got Celtic Frost years later. And yeah, not Celtic, uh, Morbid Tales years later. And I was like, I like that one better though. I think that was like my favorite Frost record of those, that initial offering of music by them. Yeah, I love both records. But Morbid Tales is, to me, just that. I'd say it's one of the, definitely one of the most influential. And for me personally, one of the best, like a top, easily top 10, probably top five metal record of all time. Yeah, definitely, man. You know, and and as far as influence goes, it's a sleeper in some ways because, you know, not a lot of people that are necessarily, I mean, probably to you guys out there that are listening to this, oh, of course, you know, Celtic Frost are legendary. But if you were to like grab like a Metallica fan off the street, you know, like a regular run of the mill Metallica fan, there's a strong chance that he doesn't even know who the fuck they are. Oh, very strong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe a Metallica fan in '86. Yeah. Because you know it was a smaller world back yeah, then man, for their a, fans. Yeah. Very small back then. You know, or someone who's into like commercial bands, like you know, like like Baroness, or like uh, you know, or maybe like like um, you know, a, a band like like. Uh, What's the other band? Not not Baroness. So, yeah, <laughs> oh, band. that other band, um, uh, Mastodon. Oh, okay. you know, yep, yep. Though the members of those bands probably know who the fuck the Celtic Frost oh, is, yeah, but man, the fans might not. Sure. Yeah, know? I totally agree with that. Yeah, you know, and then a band like High on Fire, who their whole they sound like Celtic Frost, right? Like a more like rock and roll, like like booze version of the band, but you know, still, I listen to High on Fire, and it's like. The riffing is like very, very Tom Warrior, like the tempos, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, man. Totally. That's why I put them in that category with like, you know, Motorhead or, you know, Slayer, Sabbath, like hugely influential on all kinds of genres of music, man. Do you have any favorite tracks on this record? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is a tough one. I mean, obviously, there's not many tracks on the record, but... uh well, let's let's use the U.S. version because that's okay. the one that you and I. Probably yeah, that's bought. what I was going to use anyway. So, I, I mean, no particular order. Uh, you know, the opening song into the Crypts of Rays, awesome title track, Morbid Tales, awesome and dethroned emperor. Yeah, <laughs> as yep. Tom G would say. Yeah, those are the three standouts to me. But honestly, I think every track is fucking awesome on this record, even the weird stuff. Yeah, there's there's definitely the, there's three tracks to me that stand out. Definitely, dethroned emperor <laughs> is uh, the one that's my the most iconic song on the record, in yeah. my opinion, because I've heard band after band that I love like do covers of this song. Like Black Anvil's done one, Goat Horror they've done one, and I've heard so many different covers of this song, and it's a great fucking song. And also, Why Must They by Wrecking Crew is like. The same fucking riff, basically. Fucking, dude, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I man. love Wrecking Crew, too, yeah. man. It's a great song, too. You know, it, Keith Bennett might be a guy that we should have come down here and do. we should do a, a Balance of Terror episode. Oh, yeah, man. I don't know Keith directly. I know Keith really well. You do? Keith's okay. a bro. He's an old friend. Because I, I, uh, a friend of mine um, is a good friend of his. So, if, yeah. but you already have the connection. So, Yo, I've I've known Keith since Wrecking Crew. Really, he seems like ooh, he'd be a good guy to sit right over here and talk shop with us. Totally, and and he sure. was. It's funny that you you talk about in the old days of punk and hardcore, where there's like the metal guy. Keith was the metal guy, like he was the yeah. obvious metal f- dude in the band. Dude, Long I remember hair. being that like fucking 
douchebag kid, you know, in 87, 88, going to hardcore shows in my champion sweatshirt, all yeah. X'd up, like fucking youth crew, loving that shit. And Wrecking Crew would be on a lot of these bills. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like even back then, I was a little, even though I was really into that shit, I was a little more open-minded than a lot of those dudes. So I loved Wrecking Crew back then, man. I thought they were, they were awesome. Yeah. You know? Um, they just looked like a bunch of fucking like roughhousers. You know oh yeah, I mean? totally. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, man, Re- Wrecking Crew was great. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, Dethroned Emperor. Like, you know, how many bands have covered that? A few years back, a label out of uh, the Detroit area, Corpse Flower Records, okay, yeah. put out a uh, Celtic Frost tribute LP. Oh shit! And Dethroned Emperor is not on it. What? But off topic here, but I love it anyway. The band, also, I believe, out of the Detroit area, Acid Witch. Yeah, man. They cover Cherry Orchards. Hell, you know what, dude? I knew that. We played with Acid Witch a couple times in Europe, and um, those guys are cool dudes. And they definitely, I can imagine them, that would be the song. That makes <laughs> yeah, sense that's pretty me. awesome. Yeah. They, play, yeah they, they played, I think, the day after we did at that fest up in Mass last year, too. We just missed them. So I never seen them, but I'm aware of the band. Yeah. But it's interesting. It's an LP. And no one covers, maybe that was a rule. Like, all right, guys, listen, no one's covering Dethroned Emperor because, we, you know, it's been done 4,000 times. Exactly. Because the track listing on here is pretty weird. I won't get into that. Anyway, yeah, cool, <laughs> cool the record on Corpse Flower Who Records. Who else is on there, just out of curiosity? Uh, there's some cool, uh, the band Childbite with Phil Anselmo on vocals. Oh, right on. Uh, Municipal Waste. Okay. Evoken. Oh, yeah. Dude. Oh, band we both love yeah, from Jersey. I love them, yeah. Uh, some other bands I'm not real familiar with uh, but it's a cool record and the art is amazing uh our buddy mark rudolph the artist done, done some art for me uh in the past for stuff great and does works for decibel great artist and there's a book that accompanies this yes that mark illustrated called morbid tales yeah i have that a tribute to celtic frost and i think that's available from corpse flower as well i think there was a tie-in with these two things, but uh, that's awesome, man. Now that the commercials are over for the show, I just... <laughs> cool my, shit. My my other two jams on this record, aside from Dothrone Emperor, is uh, Procreation of the Wicked. Yeah, great song, and uh, Into Crypt of Rage, which is like just a great way to kick off the record. Now, two of those three, yeah. um, are, are Dothrone Emperor is only on the U.S. version. I just right. want to add, you know. But uh, another thing about Wrecking Crew, man, is uh, <laughs> Keith's other band, his newer, newest band, Panzer Bastard. Yes. Okay? I've seen them play numerous times. Uh, my, my, my band, Tombs, has played with them several occasions. And they've done a couple of covers in, in their live set. And it really kind of captured, like, my version of what I wish punk and hardcore metal could be, where it's like Motorhead. GBH mm. and Discharge. You know what I mean? Like, those yeah. are like the kind of, oh, and Celtic Frost. Those are like, if out of those four bands, any any bands that are drawing from that sound are okay in my book. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? That, well, Wrecking Crew is a good one because I automatically, you already brought this up, but automatically when I think of hardcore bands influenced by celtic frost the first one that comes to mind is sheer terror yeah well, and then dark side nyc spawned out of sheer yeah, terror, sheer terror yep. but uh i remember hearing just can't hate enough the sheer terror album and being like holy shit like holy frost holy frost yeah, yeah. but also you know I, I love that record um 
It's cool. Wrecking Crew is another one, man. They were definitely flying that flag way back. Yeah. Like, out of all the bands in Boston, I feel like they were, like, the one band that I can still listen to, and, and besides some Slapshot, because I, I like Slapshot as well, but um, they had, like, that metal thing going on. Like, the way the Chromags and AF had this kind of, like, mean, mean-ass, like, kind of like just metal like dark like vibe yeah. to them you know what i mean yeah i agree man i agree that's a very underrated classic man balance of terror maybe we should have keith come down maybe we should have keith come down and talk about balance of terror with us that's what i'm saying maybe that's the next one of our future episodes i like it yeah so that's about all we got to say about this record man it's a classic um you know if if uh you haven't ever heard this record i would say shame on you I'd say shame on you anyway, <laughs> just for being you. <laughs> well, until next time, I hope everyone's well, and uh, take care. episode of Metal Matters, the Guinea Radio Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Guinea Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. All this rage